Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you may be. Uh, I'm Larry Diamond. I am a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Uh, and uh, it's my great pleasure to be moderating this panel and to be having the opportunity um, in recent months, and I hope and expect for a long time going forward, uh, to engage uh, at the Hoover Institution on the very important question of how we can strengthen U.S.-India relations and more acutely and smartly recognize uh, the ever-growing strategic value of India uh, in the world that is emerging now, uh, a value that I think uh, has only become uh, more apparent, if not more urgent, uh, in light of the developments uh, of the last three weeks. For many years, I should say for many decades, uh, as I think our two distinguished speakers will uh, acknowledge, uh, the U.S. Uh, did not sufficiently recognize uh, and cultivate uh, the importance of the world's largest democracy, India, uh, both in world affairs uh, and in our bilateral relations. Uh, this has begun to change over the past two decades, beginning uh, in part in the early 2000s because of the extraordinary work uh, of one of our two speakers, uh, who was then ambassador to India, uh, David Mulford, and someone um, he was working with very closely uh, at the time, uh, another colleague of ours and now the director of the Hoover Institution, Condoleezza Rice, then Secretary of State. And of course, President George Bush himself, um, who made a uh, strategic uh, breakthrough uh, in US-India relations that I think David may um, at least uh, briefly touch upon. But uh, the relationship has waxed and waned uh, at the same time that uh, the strategic uh, uh, situation in the world has become transformed by the emergence uh, of another superpower, uh, the People's Republic of China, the resurgence of a very aggressive great power, the Russian Federation, and the gradual drift toward a more multipolar world in which the possibility of a strengthening U.S.-India relationship could be a great asset. So these are the kinds of uh, issues that we want to explore uh, in this uh, extraordinary conversation uh, this morning with two of the most successful and impactful United States ambassadors to India, I think since India became an independent state in 1947. David Mulford is a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. And as I've already alluded to, he served as the 21st US ambassador to the Republic of India from 2004 to 2009. After completing his post there, he served as vice chairman uh, international at Credit Suisse, where he worked with a range of clients across the integrated 
bank with a particular focus on uh, governments as well as corporate clients across the world. He has a distinguished career uh, in government service. He was undersecretary and assistant secretary of the U.S. Treasury for uh, International Affairs from 1984 to 1992. He served as senior uh, international economic policy official uh, at the Treasury under three different secretaries of the Treasury. Uh, Kenneth Juster is a distinguished fellow uh, at the Council on Foreign Relations and uh, previously served as the 25th U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of India uh, from 2017 to 2021. It was my great pleasure and honor to meet him there in his office at the U.S. Embassy. He has over 40 years of experience as a senior government official, senior business executive, and senior law partner. He previously served in the U.S. government as deputy assistant to the president for international economic affairs on both the National Security Council and the National Economic Council, and as undersecretary of commerce, as acting counselor of the State Department, and as deputy and senior advisor to one of our uh, great diplomats, uh, the then Deputy Secretary of State, Lawrence Eagleburger. So we will now go to uh, first uh, uh, our colleague, uh, Ambassador David Mulford, uh, and he'll make some opening remarks and he'll then be followed by Ambassador Kenneth Juster. Well, thank you very much, Larry, uh, for uh, hosting this this morning. And um, I'd also like to give my greetings to Ken Jester. It's very nice to see you again. Um, and it is a pleasure to be here to speak to all of you on the subject of the U.S. Uh, strategic partnership with India. The United States already has a strong strategic partnership with India, which it has built successfully over the past 20 years, and which extends deeply into our respective civil societies and private sectors. This relationship for the United States is based on the belief that the US relationship uh, with India, the strategic partnership, will be the most important global geopolitical priority for the US of the 21st century. Uh, certainly in the Indo-Pacific and perhaps uh, possibly, probably in my view, in the world. What about, you may ask, the current situation following India's decision to abstain at the United Nations and stay neutral on the vote condemning Russia's illegal and destructive invasion of Ukraine? There's no doubt that India's decision to abstain at the UN has placed India in an awkward situation, which is already being criticized in country and by its own media. Perhaps India's decision was understandable initially, given its long-standing dependence on Russia as its leading defense partner and supplier of military weapons over more than 50 years. India may also have felt vulnerable at that particular moment because it had just begun taking delivery 
of its controversial purchase of Russia's high-tech S-400 missile defense system with an initial payment of $5 billion and more to come. Top Indian leaders, including Prime Minister Modi, were also away from Delhi in these weeks, campaigning in important state elections around the country. Looking ahead, India will have ample opportunity to work its way around what is now, what it now realizes it was a mistake decision. Putin's illegal and devastating invasion of Ukraine and the criminal excesses associated with it will prove to be a lethal blow to Putin's leadership of Russia. The world's comprehensive sanctions against Putin against Russia and its exclusion from the world economy will be devastating and long-lasting for Russia. Sustaining relations with India that preserve Russia's economic and defense interests with India will not be possible under current conditions. Imagine for a moment the difficulty of simply making payments to Russia for weapons or ensuring and paying for ongoing supplies of spare parts for previously purchased military equipment. India's security priorities will shift now more to China's threats to India itself and to India's interests in South and East Asia, as well as to India's security interests in the Indian Ocean region. Defense and interoperability relations with the United States will deepen. U.S.-India trade and two-way FDI will flourish. If the U.S. preserves the priority of a broad-based U.S.-India relations as they are today in civil society, our private sectors, our shared democratic values, and shared economic and political interests, our progress will benefit both of our countries. If we follow our tested course of relationship building with India and a crisis develops at some point with China's ambitions in the region, there's every reason to believe that the US and India will stand together as allies with or without a formal treaty arrangement. Building stronger relations with the Quad countries and taking steps to deal more firmly with an opportunistic Pakistan, moving now into the orbit of China, should benefit this effort. Attention should also now be focused on strengthening India's ties with a more united Europe. Meanwhile, every effort should be made as a U.S.-India priority to help India strengthen its position in the currently challenged global supply chain. We have all the tools in hand between us that we need to help India become the world's leading supply chain hub in Asia. India has a population of 1.4 billion people. 
a figure that is rising while China's begins to decline. Over half of India's population is under the age of 25, and its average age is approximately 10 years younger than China's. India occupies the critical strategic area of the subcontinent between the Middle East, Africa, and South and East Asia. India significantly has the third largest standing military in the world. It also shares a 2,000 mile long common border with China. India educates four times more engineers each year than the US and technology is one of India's key national priorities. As we see in our own Indian communities in the United States, there is no doubt that our geopolitical relationship with India will be our most important relationship in the 21st century, which is why the Hoover Institution has made a major commitment to strengthening understanding of and our relationship with India. Thank you very much. Thank you, David, uh, for being, for those powerful and also concise remarks. And now we turn to Ken Juster. Okay, well, thank you very much, Larry. And it's a real pleasure and privilege to be here with both you and David Mulford. I've had the uh, great opportunity to work with both of you. Going back to the first Bush administration, uh, the George H.W. Bush on uh, issues related to the end of the Warsaw Pact and the uh, uh, giving assistance to the countries uh, of the former Soviet Union, uh, when Larry was at the National Endowment for Democracy and when David was Undersecretary of Treasury, we even worked on the Polish Stabilization Fund. And then David and I worked together and he was ambassador to India and I was Undersecretary of Commerce and we were developing something called the Next Steps in Strategic Partnership, which laid the foundation for the historic civil nuclear deal between the United States and India. So that it's a great, this is a con continuation of those uh, efforts. And I appreciated uh, David's remarks and I wanted to perhaps step back first and provide a little historical context for where we are today and then discuss some of the, the challenges and opportunities that the U.S.-India relationship currently faces. As has been indicated uh, by Larry in his opening remarks, the U.S.-India relationship was somewhat uneasy during the Cold War, but with the end of the Cold War, with the economic reforms that India put in place in 1991, and with the realization in the United States that the 21st century was going to be the century of Asia, uh, the United States and India really began to warm their relationship uh, right toward the end of the Clinton administration after they had put sanctions on India because of its nuclear tests. And then there was a major transformation I would submit uh, with the administration of George W. Bush. As people to people uh, relations uh, began to explode, I think there were about 1.6 billion Indian Americans in, 19, in 2000. And I think there are about 4 billion today 
we saw the greater relationship between our high-tech community, the role that Indian high-tech companies played in uh, dealing with the issues related to Y2K and in outsourcing. All of this led to a realization that the world's oldest and largest democracy should have a much better relationship than it had to date, and that a strong India and a strong U.S.-India relationship was going to be important on its own terms as Asia became really a uh, increasingly important center of international gravity for international affairs. And everything about the relationship in the last 20 years has borne that out. Uh, we have gradually widened and deepened the relationship, and we now work together on virtually every area of human endeavor, whether it goes from defense and counterterrorism and nonproliferation to trade, investment, energy, the environment, science and technology, agriculture, education, uh, the oceans, space, and, and many more uh, endeavors. So uh, the first point I'd make is on its own terms, the relationship between our two countries is important, as David has referred to it as one of the most uh, consequential bilateral relationships. And it's going to become increasingly important as we see the tectonic plates of international affairs shifting uh, in today's world. Add into that equation uh, the role that other countries have played in perhaps stimulating it even further. And I begin with China, which has been uh, referenced. When the relationship really became transformed in uh, the Bush administration and the transformation related to removing Indian companies from uh, restrictions to getting U.S. technology and having India develop its own export controls to be able to protect that technology and then leading to the civil nuclear deal and thereafter. At that point, both countries still were trying to have cooperative relationships with China in the United States, we talked about cooperation and competition, and India was also trying to manage that uh, relationship overall. Uh, and uh, nonetheless, the U.S.-India relationship was seen as a possible hedge if the relationships with China were to go in a negative direction. Obviously, we've seen since, I think, really 2008, and the financial crisis, a more aggressive China, uh, and that's increasingly occurred in the region as well as worldwide, but we've seen it in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, we've seen it with Hong Kong, and we've seen it now on the northern border of India, uh, where the Chinese in 2020 suddenly amassed 50,000 troops and heavy artillery and have now dug in and permanent infrastructure. Well, all of this has given additional impetus to the US-India relationship and has even led to a revitalized quad among the United States, India, Australia, and Japan. And uh, the more that China acts in an aggressive manner, uh, the further uh, development we'll see in the defense relationship among these uh, countries. So that's been uh, a very important development. At the same time, uh, we've seen in the recent crisis of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we've been reminded of some of the limitations of the partnership. First and foremost, we have to remember that the United States and India 
are partners. They're not allies. India maintains a doctrine of strategic autonomy. Uh, it has, uh, was not aligned during the Cold War, and it does not want to subordinate itself to any other country's foreign policy. And we've seen it has uh, other interests, uh, including its long historical relationship with the Soviet Union and later Russia, from which it gets a lot of its military equipment. But it also believes in a multipolar world and wants to preserve poles other than just the United States and China. It doesn't want to see Russia get too close to China. It wants to try to maintain some leverage in that relationship. And so India has abstained at three UN votes. If you see the statements it's made in conjunction with those abstentions, they become increasingly uh, uh, important in terms of uh, upholding the principles of territorial integrity and sovereignty and of the peaceful resolution of uh, disputes. But it's to date been unwilling to publicly condemn Russia. Privately, they may be taking another line and another one of India's strong uh, beliefs is that you don't publicly condemn a country because that limits your ability to have a dialogue with them and negotiate. And uh, the United States has learned that at times, as was mentioned earlier in the US-India relationship, but India practices that with other countries. So it has, on the one hand, a belief in territorial integrity, on the other hand, a belief in not condemning uh, other countries. It has interest, it had an interest in getting Indian students out of Ukraine, and it didn't want to do anything to undercut that. But all of this has, has frustrated uh, Americans who were hoping for stronger statements from India. It has created some concerns on Capitol Hill. Uh, but I think we also at the government level have been understanding and see that, quite frankly, the long-term trends of the India-Russia relationship may be moving in a very negative way as Russia continues its atrocities in Ukraine. I'll come back to that uh, in a second. Another limitation, uh, both a, a, a strength and a limitation of the relationship has been in the economic sphere. Uh, it is true that our bilateral trade has increased from about $19 billion uh, both ways in the year 2000 or 2001 to almost $160 billion today, trade in goods and services. But given the fact that the United States is the world's largest economy in India, the world's sixth largest economy, that's really a fraction of what it should be. And we even now see increased barriers to trade in some respects uh, in India. And, and even uh, we've seen the United States president recently emphasized by American. And so this has been frustrating. And for US companies trying to expand in India, it has always been difficult. There's at times a, a uncertainty in the regulatory regime. And yet there's also huge opportunities, as David mentioned, whether it's in the supply chain and critical and emerging technologies in health cooperation. We've seen this in the vaccine uh, area. Uh, the challenge is that while the United States and India have had a economic relationship that has moved forward but has not fulfilled its potential, China has seen economics as the real sphere of competition in Asia and has been very aggressive. Not only does it have significant bilateral trade with virtually every country in the region, uh, and it is in many cases the leading trade partner of those countries, 
It has also uh, led the way in the regional and comprehensive economic partnership agreement that India had been negotiating for seven years, but then withdrew abruptly at the last minute. And the United States also has pulled back from the regional economic architecture when it had led the way in signing the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but then uh, in the last administration withdrew from that agreement, which has now become the comprehensive and progressive agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. And China has suddenly applied to be a member of that. So the Chinese are really trying to insinuate themselves into the regional economic architecture, and then they have their own Belt and Road Initiative designed to provide assistance to other countries to increase connectivity, build infrastructure, and really, again, expand China's influence and even domination over countries in the region and beyond to other areas where it wants access to natural resources and even potential military bases. So China's had a very focused economic strategy. And this is something, again, that the United States and India need to refocus on themselves because they've not been as successful. But let me conclude by saying that if you actually step back and look at where we were in the year 2000, 2001, when David and I were initially working on US-India relations and where we are today, the progress has been extraordinary. Uh, no one would ever have assumed that we'd be doing the degree of military exercises we do. We recently begun tri-services exercises. So it's not just one service to one service, but across services. We've signed what are known as foundational or enabling agreements between our defense establishments. Uh, we've had uh, a Malabar a naval exercise, including all of the Quad countries, uh, but you can go area to area. The progress has been enormous. And as I mentioned, as China becomes more aggressive in its behavior, that actually is an opportunity to work together uh, increasingly, not just the US and India, but with quiet countries. And as Russia commits the atrocities that it is and will be increasingly isolated by the rest of the world, and I think become a bit of an economic basket case, India may inevitably have to transition from its reliance on a significant degree of Russian equipment and its military to needing both to increase its domestic production, but also get a cooperative relationships more with the United States, countries like France, Israel, and others. So this too is an opportunity if we manage the relationship appropriately. So I conclude by saying uh, what I said at the outset, a strong India and a strong US-India relationship is really critical in the 21st century. It's moving in that direction and it's up to all of us to try to manage that and for it to be a good two-way partnership uh, along the way. Thank you. Great, uh, thank you, Ken, so much for those very rich uh, opening remarks. I'm gonna ask a few questions now and then turn to the questions in our queue, which are already queuing up, but I'll just remind our audience that they're welcome to pose their question in the Q&A box. Uh, the, one of the most interesting and tangible manifestations of a strengthening relationship uh, is not bilateral, but quadrilateral. So could you each uh, give your own assessment? David, we'll start 
with you uh, as to how the quad that groups India, the US, uh, Japan, and Australia has progressed and to what extent that can be certainly not an adequate, but a, a useful um, strategic venue for deepening the relationship. You first, David. Well, thank you, Larry. Uh, the Quad is a, is a very interesting example of uh, growing cooperation between uh, critically important countries in the region, along with ourselves. Um, and it's interesting because it started as a more a trade-focused group, um, and it didn't take quite the same way as it did later as tensions began to build in the region. And it really is now perceives itself as a small group of important countries that share a variety of common interests, including security interests in the region in the face of China's growing uh, aggressivity, if you want to put it that way. And it is, I think, positioning itself to be a vital, vitally important um, grouping. <laughs> Excuse me. And uh, it, uh, it is going to be uh, growing in importance, and uh, it may form a sort of nucleus of an even broader group of countries that may begin to come together. There is, of course, one difference between the countries, and that is that India is truly a frontline state uh, with China, and therefore always will have somewhat different views about a variety of different things. But when you consider the importance of uh, Japan and Australia, both New Zealand, Together with the United States, it, it is a formidable beginning to a very important initiative. Ken, anything to add? Thank you, Larry. Uh, you know, the Quad was actually one of the important initiatives that I and others worked on in the uh, last administration. Again, uh, to uh, amplify on what David said on the history, it actually first came about in 2004 in response to the tsunami in the region. These four countries got together for humanitarian assistance. Uh, and disaster relief. Uh, and then they, uh, Prime Minister Abe of Japan really had this idea of the Indo-Pacific and the Quad uh, moving forward. And in 2007, they became a, a, a unit meeting, but by 2008, the Chinese had objected to it and they sort of dissipated. And it was only in 2017 that we revived it uh, at the assistant secretary and ambassadorial level initially. But in 2019 and 20, we had ministerials, including during COVID in October 2020, person to person. And then the Biden administration has elevated it to the summit level. And the agenda has expanded. It was, you know, disaster relief and maritime domain awareness, which was very important. It now is developing and what they call a positive agenda. They are not overtly seeking to contain or target any country, but to build a positive architecture for the Indo-Pacific. And they've cooperated on vaccine 
issues, on critical and emerging technologies, on climate-related matters. Uh, they've expanded this to cyber issues uh, and, a, and a range of work. And it is growing, but they've been uh, careful and cautious about not taking on too much. Uh, they do not have any formal institutionalization. But even during this issue uh, with Russia's invasion of uh, Ukraine, despite the fact that uh, India was abstaining while the others were supporting the condemnation of Russia, the Quad ministers got together uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and it was in part to send a signal that despite the attention being paid to Europe and Russia, this continues to be an important grouping. And I think the Quad views the fact that they will be able to, on some issues, work as a Quad Plus and bring other countries in. In other issues, it may be a subgroup of Quad, but it really has become now an important part of, as I said earlier, trying to build a positive architecture for the region. I mean, it is this dynamic region, but the tectonic plates are shifting with the rise of China now we see with Russia's action. And how do you put in place structures that really uh, 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 stabilize the region and uh, espouse the rule of law, a free and open Indo-Pacific with freedom of navigation, with freedom of overflight, with freedom of commerce. This is what these countries, I think, are trying to do. Great, and uh, thank you for uh, your work in really igniting the Quad. Uh, Ken, as you said, this really became a real and quite possibly enduring phenomenon um, uh, during the time you were ambassador. Ken, uh, you mentioned arms sales. Oh, well, you both kind of touched on it. Um, maybe we could delve more deeply into it. One of our uh, questioners asks, you know, why are they even buying Russian weapons? Uh, you could perhaps expand a bit on that, but could you also drill down into how we might gradually wean India off uh, its uh, substantial uh, dependence on Russian arms purchases and develop a, you know, a deeper relationship in that important sense for India's security. Okay, well, thank you for that. Yeah, as I mentioned, during the Cold War, the United States uh, really leaned more to Pakistan and that left India to have to get weaponry from the Soviet Union. Uh, at one point, they had asked the U.S. for advanced weaponry after the war with China, and we sort of hesitated. And as I said, uh, as we moved more toward Pakistan, they moved more to the Soviet Union. They signed a peace and friendship treaty, I believe, in 1971. And so the vast majority, I'd say over 90 percent of their weaponry came from the Soviet Union. And that weaponry also comes without some of the conditions that the US puts on it in terms of technology transfer and the like. Uh, since uh, 2000, uh, India has really started to diversify more. It, uh, at that point, sales from the US were virtually zero. Today, they're over $20 billion. Uh, they've purchased a fair amount from France also, from Israel and from some of the other European countries but they still have about 65 to 70% of Russian uh, systems. A lot of it is legacy uh, 
uh, equipment, and they still need Russian spare parts to maintain that. But there are also items that they're purchasing new. And the S-400, which was mentioned, is one of those. That's a missile surface-to-air missile defense system. India had actually come to the United States during the Obama administration to explore the possibility of getting a missile defense system. And we did not want to give the technology to them. I believe, although I was not in government at that time, there were probably two reasons. One, uh, because we were trying to balance it in India and and Pakistan relationships, we didn't want one to get well ahead of the other. And two, we were concerned about some of the sensitive technology associated with missile defense. So they went ahead and negotiated with Russia. They feel they need these systems to protect from uh, missiles or, or, or airplanes, really air defense from China and from Pakistan. And that was really a done deal before what are known as the CATSA sanctions were even on the book in the United States. And India has now gone ahead and acquired and started to pay for that and what the impact of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine will have on that and whether the US will still waive the CASA sanctions, which I think they should because it's a done deal, uh, is, is an open issue. But India also gets nuclear powered submarines from Russia, something we would make available. And they have Russia building, uh, working with it jointly to build frigates. Uh, again, something that they can't easily get elsewhere. So there are certain areas where they feel they need things for their national security. And, and Russia is the country that can supply it. Russia equipment comes at a much lower cost than U.S. equipment, although we would submit that you have to look at the life cycle of the cost. And it can't be just what it is when you purchase it. And you've seen the quality of Russian equipment uh, in the war in Ukraine. It's not uh, at the same level of US uh, equipment. Uh, but so this is the historical reasons for it. And India will never buy just from the US. It, and it has sought to diversify. And as I said, I think what's happening in Russia may really accelerate this diversification because whatever the outcome is, whether Russia occupies Ukraine, whether Russia's their economy is going to be severely weakened. They're going to be greatly isolated. Their ability to make and deliver the types of equipment that India needs will be severely compromised. The impact of the sanctions will make it much more difficult to get such equipment. And India faces immediate challenges with China on its northern border. Uh, and uh, it wants to build ultimately equipment indigenously, but that won't happen overnight. We need to look at how we can explore co-producing items with India and even encouraging, as I said, other Western countries to do the same so we can backstop uh, the gaps they'll have from not getting equipment from Russia and see this as a way to get more from the United States and other countries. And finally, final point I'd make is India right now is struggling or is working to make its own three services interoperable. But if it's really gonna have the ability to combat China, it has to become interoperable with the United States and potentially other countries. And this will require, again, the, the sales and training related to some of the sophisticated US equipment, which we will not be able to continue to sell if they have a large inventory of Russian sophisticated equipment and the two systems you know, interact with each other. So it's a complicated issue, but I think there's a real opportunity here for, for movement. Um, uh, David, I want to switch to investment and ask you a question about that, but go ahead if you want to say anything. Well, I want to just make a couple of points on this weapons business. 
because the experience that we had when we, the United States, imposed sanctions in 1998 uh, on India, <clears throat> following uh, its nuclear testing uh, activities with its own nuclear weapon, um, that was a very hard experience for us because the effect was dramatically against our interests. And our supply of weapons during that period fell, as Ken said, to almost zero uh, around about the early 2000s. But the lesson to be learned on that is that you cannot have a, uh, a policy of dictation to India. It is a sovereign state and regards itself very, very strongly as a sovereign state. And the sanctions, frankly, embarrassed India because they were dual-use products of all kinds and affected the space program as well as military programs. And they developed a sound uh, doubt about the dependability of the United States as a partner. And this interfered across the board with all kinds of things and damaged our relationship with India. And when I was ambassador in the early days, I got constant reminders from people about the lack of dependability of the US as a partner because of this behavior. And a sense developed that you couldn't trust the United States because any day of the week, the Congress or somebody else might suddenly introduce some kind of punitive action. And our, as Larry, is, as uh, Ken has said, the intensity of US management of weapons operations with uh, India or anybody else may be justified and desirable, but it's not easy to manage with India because they don't want people wandering around in their country from our Defense Department, checking up to see how they're dealing with the weapons, how they're taking care of them, whether they're honoring every aspect of the end-use agreements and so on. So this has been an instructive lesson and it took us some years to build back. And the key thing that helped us was the decision by President George W. Bush to introduce a civil nuclear negotiation that resulted in a major treaty on civil nuclear and India's access to civil nuclear technology. And that restored our relations. And since then, we've done very, very well at expanding. And I hope we continue to keep those lessons in mind because it is very easy to overdo things. And we need to be able to give India top-of-the-line technology in radar, weaponry, and other things uh, that are important and take advantage of whatever stress develops on the Indian-Russian supply arrangement. Great. Um, well, let me pivot now to uh, investment relations uh, between India and the United States, and in particular, uh, another way that India... Uh, has been opening up at least a little and perhaps could open up a lot more. 
and that is to foreign direct investment from the United States uh, and uh, other dynamic uh, economies. Um, uh, one questioner asked, how do we get India to have some rule of law, maybe we should say a stronger rule of law in the investment sector? Um, he notes, uh, well, he offers the opinion that India is still a dangerous country to invest in uh, and cites the cases of Vodafone and Telenor uh, saying they learned some expensive lessons. I must confess I'm not familiar with them. And then our friend uh, and colleague Shumi Ganguly, uh, Ganguly um, raises the, um, the issue of the Make in India initiative uh, and maybe its complex uh, implications in this regard uh, for um, receptivity to foreign investment. So um, David, this time, maybe we could start with you and um, if you could reflect on the, the opportunities and obstacles with respect to foreign investment. Yes, well, thank you very much. And I'll also look forward to what Ken has to say. Um, but the investment opportunities between the United States and India, and when I say that, I mean both directions, mm -hmm. uh, are really virtually unlimited. But as you point out, things have not been easy to develop, partly because India has a longstanding, very intensely active bureaucracy that may not uh, have the rule of law base that we would like to see, but does have a strong administrative input into uh, how to conduct investment. And this isn't always done in a way that really encourages investment and gives protection and freedom to incoming investors. And there's been all kinds of examples you cited to of difficult times and tense situations between investors and the bureaucratic forces of India. And India's history is based on, uh, you know, government-run economy. And uh, this is a lingering force in India that is slow to dissolve, if you want to put it that way. And uh, what needs to happen, and it has begun to happen, is there needs to be freer contact and less government interference in India on the detail, not only of incoming investment, but the administrative management of existing investment to make sure that it is open in a way that this incentivizes foreign investors. Meanwhile, India itself is investing much more around the world. I mean, in a period of a couple of years, they invested over $20 billion in buying a Land Rover, for example, of Jaguar cars and, and uh, steel industries in, in Europe. And this has been a big breakthrough for them uh, in terms of internationalizing their economy. So, I would also just point out, because it, it highlights a priority area, 
The United States has not had a serious engagement with India on trade uh, at a meeting level of senior people that really achieved something since 19, uh, since 2018, if you can imagine. And yet India is alive with interest in startups and technology and so on. It's a very, very active risk-taking population. So they're perfect partners for extended uh, effort. And that has to do also with Silicon Valley and India. As you know, Silicon Valley has many owners from India in it. And uh, so this is an area that really should be heavily emphasized and, and clarified so that joint ventures in India are freer to follow their business interests and so on. And, 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 and India becomes more uh, focused on the progress it can achieve for its own economy by opening more to these forces and let investment flow more easily. These are complicated issues, but they are of a very, very high priority and they should be among the top things we focus on. Well, I'm guessing it was one of the top things that Ken focused on during his period as ambassador. So go ahead, Ken. Uh, you're right, uh, Larry. It was an issue we gave a lot of attention to. It was one of the areas where we fell short of uh, achieving all we would have liked to. But let me try to unpack it because it's a very complicated matter. And there are actually distinctions between investment and trade. Uh, I said when I first got to India that one of the great opportunities was as U.S. companies and other companies were not expanding further in China or even pulling out of China for India to attract that investment to its country. It was also an opportunity for countries in Southeast Asia. And we've ultimately seen that Vietnam, Indonesia, and some of the others have been more successful to date than India in getting some of the investment that has come out of China or not gone forward in China and going elsewhere in the region. And the Indians have seen this and they're trying to do things uh, about it. Uh, there has been, a, as uh, David mentioned, and as uh, some of the questioners said, an uncertain regulatory environment. And we saw in the Vodafone case, uh, another case with Cairn Energy, where they got uh, assets really taken either with retroactive taxation or other sorts of inappropriate conduct that international arbitral tribunals ruled three to one, three to nothing in favor of the companies against the government of India. And at first, the government of India would not enforce these arbitral awards, which itself is rather unprecedented because they're a signatory to what's known as the New York Convention on Enforcement of Arbitral Awards that requires automatic enforcement. India has now enforced these awards, has reached agreements to do so, and is very much now trying to incentivize companies to invest in India. It's creating special zones, and it's actually raising its barriers to trade to try to say, we don't want you to import, we want you to invest instead. I don't think that's necessarily a successful policy that I'll get to uh, why in a second, but it's uh, also had to give more attention to infrastructure. Some of the impediments to investing is there's poor infrastructure, there are rigid labor laws, uh, and so it is now uh, planning in its budget to invest huge amounts of money in improving infrastructure. 
And Make in India or Made in India is a program that actually welcomes foreign investment to make in India. What they don't want is for you to import made products elsewhere into India. And so, as I said, they sort of see raising barriers to trade as incentivizing companies to invest instead. The problem is for a lot of companies, you don't just go from not trading to investing. You trade, you want to get a better feel for the country as trade becomes more successful. You then may start to transfer some of your operations to the country and build facilities. But you normally like to trade before you invest. And even when you've invested, you want to be able to import parts and components to be able to make your products, everything you won't have made in India. And India should not, in my opinion, want everything made in India. They should want high value goods made in India, but low value goods made in cheaper uh, places. So this is still a challenge. As, as David has said, uh, an open economy historically, even for India, has been uh, correlated with high growth and I think caused high growth. And we've seen that in the countries of Southeast Asia and the, and the Asian tigers. Uh, and India, when it opened up in 1991, suddenly went from a very meager level of growth uh, earlier to six, seven, eight percent at times from like two percent. Uh, so I still would submit that raising barriers to trade uh, is going to hurt your economic growth and will not necessarily incentivize investment. But it is clear to me that the government is focused on trying to get investment. They need it for their own domestic uh, production, but still just like you heard, quite frankly, President Biden say in the State of the Union, buy American, they want you to buy Indian, and they want India ultimately to become the export place for the rest of the world, whether it's in vaccines or, or pharmaceuticals. And again, we'll have to see whether the rest of the world will accept a situation where they'll buy from India, but they can't sell into India and how that all works out. And that's why I said the economic relationship is still one of great opportunity for the United States and India, and more important regionally, as China has its own strategy. Great. Um, I want to uh, ask the first question that was posed uh, in the chat by Deepak Kulkarni. <clears throat> uh, will the India-US relationship improve in spite of um, well, we've already talked about uh, India's support for Russia, but nuanced and increasingly uh, balanced. But the other two issues that Deepak raises are the kind of erosion of democratic values and performance in India uh, and the reduced uh, commitment to secularism in India. And so to what extent do these present obstacles to the relationship, problems for India, and how do we uh, manage them, you know, in a context where you know much better than almost anybody else uh, I can imagine that uh, this is a big and proud country that doesn't like to be lectured to. So David, we'll start with you. Well, this is a very important question, also a very sensitive one, because 
it does involve uh, a tendency by the United States to lecture other countries. One of the things we do and we feel justified in doing. But uh, my recommendations very strongly would be to preserve greater respect for the individuality of a country like India. It is a true democracy. And I could, I'll save the time by not running through all the, the evidence of that. It is a democratic nation. But like other democracies, including our own, it is imperfect in its democratic uh, uh, profile, just as we are ourselves. So I think the, the policy that India has followed over the decades of not speaking out against other countries uh, is, is a sound lesson for us. For example, India probably lost more than any other partner country of the United States in our exit from Afghanistan than any place else. They have not made hostile and extreme remarks about that. They have maintained their silence. They have also, uh, in my opinion, overdone that in the case of Pakistan, which for years has conducted terrorist operations in India. And the United States has unfortunately done relatively little about it. So they harbor views that we have a double standard on a lot of these things that, is, uh, that irritates them, frankly, and makes it a little bit harder for us to have open and easy relations, which is why in my opening remarks, I said that uh, India has space to work around whatever problems it may have created by its strategy up to now with regard to Russia uh, in the UN and those things. Uh, and we should step aside and let their system and culture work and not intervene hostily. And I suggested that we look forward to when India has found its way around in these difficult areas. And some of that is going to be done for it by the world effort on Russia, the sanctions, and the difficulty that all this will cause for India to retain and maintain its existing ties with, with, uh, with Russia. So I, I think it's important to leave things aside a bit and not harp on about things that we may not like or we may disapprove of, but it would be unwise to make too much of it. So that, that would be my general advice. And I think um, uh, it has uh, paid off already. And I think there's one part of US-India relations that's very, very important. And that is, as people, we like each other. Ask the student to come to America. I don't think there's many happy Indian students in Moscow, for example. And uh, this is very important sort of underpinning of our relationship. And we need to keep our patience with these things. 
and decide what things are relatively more important than others. Great. Uh, Ken, we'll uh, give you the, the final words on this and anything else you want to address. Go ahead. Okay. Thank you, Larry. And let me just build on what David was saying. You know, you have to step back and realize that the United States and India are both very large, very diverse, very complicated countries. We have a partnership. We don't necessarily see eye to eye in everything. We have to manage that relationship. And as I said, I think we've done it very successfully over the last 20 uh, plus years. There is no doubt that uh, there are certain uh, events that occur in India that are troubling. And we've seen that in uh, killings of Muslim groups and uh, things like in the U.S. government mandated by Congress has a annual human rights report and religious freedom report and human trafficking report. And we document things that are of concern to us and we raise them with the government of India, which, uh, as David's also indicated, doesn't really appreciate our opining on what goes on in their country. But I think ultimately the best way to discuss these issues is privately, including, by the way, concerns they may have about things that happen to Indian Americans in the United States and some hate crimes that occur uh, in our country. Uh, these will happen un regrettably, unfortunately, but it's something that we shouldn't ignore, but we shouldn't necessarily be publicly berating uh, each other uh, about them. Uh, and more broadly, uh, David alluded to on the issues relating to Russia, maybe on economic issues, we're going to have to work through uh, uh, things where we don't have our interests always aligning or we have different cultural uh, backgrounds or beliefs or different historical perspectives, but the relationship has continued to move upward and to the right in a very positive way. And we have to always sort of step back and be strategic and see the big picture and manage these issues in that context. And as I said, in a, in a region of the world that has fast become the center of gravity, that's the Indo-Pacific, with the plates, tectonic plates of uh, moving with the rise of China, with Russia's atrocities, a strong India and a strong US relationship are gonna be in our interests and in their interest, and it's something that I think we need to always work on together uh, and build on the positives and work through issues where we may disagree and recognize that all of the trends, the big trends have been moving in the right direction. And we need to keep that in mind uh, as we look at this important relationship. And I will say the next five to 10 years are going to be very, very critical. And so I'm very hopeful that and I think the administration takes this view as well, the leadership in both countries appreciates the strategic significance of our partnership and it continues to grow and flourish. Great. Um, uh, and one could also note that the relationship, of course, is not just government to government and company to company or economy to economy. It's also civil society to civil society. Right. And a lot more can be said, explored, uh, and engaged uh, with uh, in those interactions, including the ones we're trying to uh, cultivate with our peer think tanks and with academia in India. Yeah, if I could just add one point, Larry, because David mentioned this, but, you know, when countries speak to each other, they often 
think about their interests. But the real secret sauce of the U.S.-India relationship is the people-to-people relationship. The four million plus Indian Americans in this country who are wonderful ambassadors for their country and then back to India for our country. I can't tell you how many ministers or business people I met. And one of them said to me, my best investment, my most important investment is in the United States. And I was thinking, was this an Apple stock, Google stock? It was my child who's in your college or who's living there or studying there. The degree of affection, the degree of warmth that the U.S. ambassadors met with, regardless of where I'm traveling or David traveled or uh, others in India, is unbelievable. And that is not to be minimized because that should help us work through disagreements and differences. It's not a monolithic group uh, by any respect, but it's the important glue uh, and secret sauce of the relationship. Well, uh, thank you, Ken, for ending on that very hopeful and indeed inspiring note. Thank you, David, as well, for your deeply insightful um, uh, and uh, really wise remarks. Um, And it's great having you both. And in particular, as I said, having in dialogue in one place on the screen, two of our most uh, successful uh, ambassadors to India over the decades. So uh, that closes out our hour here uh, in this program on uh, exploring how to strengthen relations between India and the US, but we will be revisiting this subject. I'm sorry that time didn't allow us to get to all the questions, but it is my habit to copy them and share them with our two speakers. So I will do that and thank you all very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Larry.